0: Greetings, everyone, around this twirling planet of ours. Wherever you're listening, I hope you're enjoying the summer and not allowing the heat to get you down. Laszlo Montgomery here, bringing you another episode from the ChinaHistoryPodcast.com. Well, two weeks ago, we were in the Western Han Dynasty. Then, last week, we were in the year 1921. Today's episode looks at a giant among 20th century giants of international business, entertainment, and philanthropy. He was born during the reign of the Qing Dynasty Emperor Guangxu, uh, and 11 years before protesters took to the streets to ignite the May 4th Movement in 1919. And 11 years into the 21st century, this venerable gentleman, knighted by the Queen of England in 1977, is still alive and well. Now some of you hardcore China history buffs are probably wondering, what's up with that? Run Run Shaw? What's that got to do with Chinese history? Well, let me just say, I've been a long-time admirer of Fu since before I started seriously studying China back in the 80s. As a teenager, I had been exposed to movies produced by the Shaw Brothers, and their rip-off of the Warner Brothers logo was always indelibly stamped in my memory. I don't know where I first saw Sir Run Run Shaw's name, in a movie credit or magazine, I don't know, but the first time I heard it, I never forgot it. Run Run Shaw, How can you forget that name? So his life is the focus of our podcast today. He was born in 1907, five years before the last Qing emperor abdicated. This was the Chinese year 4605, the year of the sheep. Charlie Chaplin had yet to even make his film debut in making a living. That was the same year Marconi's longwave wireless opened up instantaneous transatlantic communication. He was 11 years old when the May 4th protests happened. He was 20 when Chiang Kai-shek launched the Northern Expedition after massacring the communists with a little help from Big Air Du. He was 27 when the Long March began. He was 38 when World War II ended and 42 when Mao and the communists liberated China. He was 49 when Mao launched the Hundred Flowers campaign and 69 when the Cultural Revolution ended in 1976. And just before his 90th birthday, he witnessed the handover of Hong Kong to China. He's been around to not only witness the China economic miracle, but also to play a front and center role as one of the movers and shakers at the highest layers of government and industry. And he's still going strong. He'll be 104, this November or October, depending on which story is the correct one, he's been around a very, very long time and has witnessed a lot of Chinese history over the course of his life. He's given away vast amounts of money to causes that have been dear to his heart. When the 2008 Great Sichuan earthquake happened, one of his charitable foundations gave a hundred million Hong Kong dollars. He doesn't get out like he once did, but I'm sure. Wherever he is, he can reflect on a life well-lived and be thankful for not only witnessing so much change, turbulence, and history in his lifetime, but actually being a historic personage in his own right. So let's look at the magnificent life of Sir Run Run Shah. The earliest you can trace the Shah family is back to the time of the Hongwu Emperor of the Ming Dynasty. The Hongwu Emperor, you'll... No doubt, recall was in fact none other than Zhu Yuanzhang, the founder of the dynasty. Run Run Shaw's ancient relative, who came from Yanzhou up in Shandong Province, uh, which was maybe a five or six-hour walk to Qufu, the birthplace of Confucius. This ancient relative was given the governorship of the county of Zhenhai in Ningbo in Zhejiang province. And then around 17 generations later comes our hero, Shao Yifu, son of the wealthy pigments and textile dyeing magnate Shao Yushen, the surname Shao, fourth tone. This was anglicized to Shaw, S H A W for whatever reason, definitely easier for foreigners than Shao. Run Run Shaw was the sixth of six brothers. This explains why he was known in the Cantonese speaking world as Lok Sok, or sixth uncle. Four of the six brothers were involved in the business that came to be known as Shaw Brothers Studio. And of these four, two of them were uh, perhaps more involved than the others. You had Run Ji, Shao Zui Wang, Run Di, Shao Zui Ren, Run Mi, Shao Ren Mei, and last but not least, Run Run, or Shao Ren Ren but he was better known as Shao Yifu. I explained a couple dozen podcasts ago how Chinese, especially the more educated and upper-class types, would often change their names for various reasons. So there were four Shaw brothers involved in the movie business, which began in 1925 as the Tianyi Film Company in Shanghai. China at this time is in a state of flux. Sun Yat-sen died in this year from cancer, and now a new guy... Chiang Kai-shek was the main power in Republican-era China. We're in between World War I and World War II. These were the legendary and infamous battle days of 1920s and 30s Shanghai that have spawned a million unforgettable photographs, stories, legends, and Hollywood productions. Run Run Shaw and a few of his brothers set up this studio to take advantage of this new motion picture technology and feed it to a market starving for exactly this kind of entertainment. So from this studio, they started to make all these silent films. They made the movies and they distributed them and later showed them in their own theaters. Now, Run Run Shaw, Shao Yifu, he's barely 18 years old when all this starts getting cranked up. So here he is. He's the he's the youngest of six brothers, all born from this very rich father who made his money in manufacturing, and he's getting his start now. It's 1924, 1925. Now, Xiao Yuxian, the patriarch, he was as traditional a Chinese as you could get. Later on, his youngest son, and the topic of today's podcast episode, will bring philanthropy to great heights, but it was Yu Shen, who set an example to Run Run Shaw, no doubt all his sons, that with great wealth also comes great responsibility. It was more than the Shaw brothers who benefited from their father's money. Shao Shen gave generously to society, to those most in need. He didn't live like an ascetic or anything, but he did live simply and frugally. And the last thing he wanted to hear was that his sons wanted to go invest in this totally new entertainment business. There was no use trying to explain this. They had to keep this hush-hush from their very conservative father. Shanghai in the 1920s, I mean, if you thought China was booming now, 1920s Shanghai, in between the wars, warlords running the place, no central authority, the massive market, all that limitless potential. Times were changing Fast and people were on the go constantly. Same in the USA. The conditions in the US that led to the creation of the movie business in 1908 were the same in China in the 1920s. People wanted to be entertained. Now, I don't know which one of the brothers came up with the idea first, but in 1925 they realized there was also a huge and even more affluent market of Chinese who would enjoy the same movies that were hot in Shanghai. The plethora of Chiao, or overseas Chinese, who populated Singapore, Hong Kong, Malaya, Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, that was the future. So, with an eye on this future, the third brother, Renmi, Shao Renmei, he heads to Singapore. And this is pre-Singapore Airlines days. He didn't just hop on a plane back in 1925. It was quite a major production to get from Ningbo to Singapore. The eldest son, Renji, Shao Zui Wang, he remained in charge of the Shanghai Tianyi Studio. The English name was called Unique Film Productions. Now, today we're focusing on Sir Run Run Shaw, but I just wanted to say this eldest Shaw brother, Run G. Shaw, he was truly another incredible person, multi-talented, a business genius, and anyway, lived an amazing, rich life. So, Run Me Shaw, he gets to Singapore and has his hands full getting the lay of the land and figuring out how to conquer the world, or at least the world of the overseas Chinese entertainment market. China was a big market, and they already had a toehold there, but it was getting too limiting in some respects, and sooner or later, the competition in Shanghai would get the same idea about exploiting the Southeast Asian Huaqiao entertainment market. He sets up an office on Robinson Road in Singapore, and two years later, in 1927, Run Run Shaw, only 20 years old, he joins Brother Me in the Lion City, Singapore. Now, Singapore is a tiny place on the tip of the Malaysian Peninsula. The population of Singapore today is about the same as Queens and Brooklyn combined. So my point is, the domestic market in Singapore isn't too big. And when the two Shaw brothers were trying to carve out their niche, there was quite a bit of Cutthroat competition already there, controlling their piece of what amounted to a very small pie. The Shaws just didn't walk in like Caesar did in northern Turkey against Pharnaces II in 47 BC. This was a long, hard slog to establish a beachhead in Singapore and soon after in Malaya. Not that it was any easier in Shanghai. There, too, the Shaw brothers faced every imaginable kind of roadblock, trying to make an honest buck producing movies. These were very rough times, and I'm sure they had to put up with all manners of gangsters and government officials always looking for... Some kind of haochu or something. Once Run Run Shaw is in Singapore, they opened their first theater. Which, let me tell you, was nothing more than an old building with a white sheet hanging down to serve as a screen. It was more or less what you've seen before in any movie or TV show that depicts the embryonic years of the movies. This was how they were able to stay alive. They charged for tickets, and like any other business, whatever was left over from the revenue, after all expenses, went into their pockets. Once the Shaw brothers established themselves in Singapore, Runmi Shaw went north to Malaya, as it was called back then, and went to all the markets in Selangor, Kuala Lumpur, Ipoh, Penang, Malacca. All their movies everywhere was a big hit. Things grew very quickly. They were building cinemas all over Singapore and Malaya, and a lot of their profits were plowed into real estate. They set up shop in Hong Kong in 1934. Run D. Shaw ran that operation, which operated as Nanyang, or South Sea Studio. Unbeknownst to the Shaw brothers, the Japanese would invade Shanghai a few years later in August of 1937. And that, as you can imagine, put a bit of a damper on operations in China. So now Hong Kong becomes more important than ever to the Shaws. Their first studio was on Bak Tai Street in Wan, a few blocks away, I might add, from the Mei Wa Kung Yip Chung Sam on Wan Dou, where I used to take the bus to work for five years. Little did I know. That studio later burned down and was replaced in the 1960s with another studio that we'll get to in a second. The 1930s was when movies started to have sound, too the age of talking pictures, had come to Southeast Asia. It was definitely a great leap forward compared to silent films, and it brought in even more droves of customers looking for that great escape that movies gave you. Now, not only did the Shaws produce their own movies, but they distributed movies as well. These included Western films. The early to mid-30s, those were rough times in Singapore, as they were everywhere. The Great Depression took a while to wear off those were rather lean years for the Shaws, but they got through it alive, and by the late 30s, things were booming again. In China, the warlord era was over, but the nation was still dealing with the twin terrors of the Japanese invasions and the nationalist communist fighting. The Shaws got into other businesses, and their wealth continued to grow. Their core business was still entertainment, making and distributing movies. They had 140 theaters across Southeast Asia, and op- they also operated amusement parks. Run Run Shaw, like all his brothers and their families, they weathered the storm of World War II from Singapore. Because of the propaganda value, the Japanese, after defeating the British forces, seized all the Shaw movie assets, and the brothers, like many other industrialists, were forced to work for the Japanese and do their bidding The post-World War II boom years were kind to the Shaw's. In 1957, Run Run Shaw took over as head of the Hong Kong operation from his older brother, Rundi. When Run Run Shaw takes over the studio operations, things really start to boom for the company. Not only was Run Run Shaw able to consistently feed their network of cinemas with a steady stream of content... He also signed deals as the exclusive distributor of pictures produced in the U.S. by Warner Brothers, Universal, United Artists. In the early 1950s, he aggressively promoted the best of Shaw's productions internationally through the medium of film festivals. The genius of Run Run Shaw and his brothers and the way they promoted their films in Malaya, in Singapore, in Hong Kong, and in Indonesia was incredible. They utilized all the synergies between their cinema halls, their printing operations, their amusement parks, and live theater to promote the business. During the 1960s, the Shaw organization was unstoppable and the most powerful force in Chinese-language movies and the distribution of foreign films, including Hollywood productions. Run Run Shaw's name was synonymous with movies and entertainment. However, he wasn't alone by any means. There were other big fish in the movie business, among them the suave, legendary Renaissance man, a great tycoon and noted ornithologist, Lu Po of the Cathay Organization. They were always breathing down the neck of the Shaws, trying to one-up them or be faster to market with the latest star or technology. 1957 was a big year, in addition to the conclusion of China's first five-year plan in Mao's anti-rightist campaign, the infamous Fan Yo Pai Yun Dong. Run Run Shaw, in a very gutsy move, bought 46 acres up in a part of Kowloon known as Clearwater Bay. There he built the largest private film studio in the world, called Movietown. Finished in 1961, over the next few decades, over a thousand movies were squeezed out of this state-of-the-art operation, the brainchild of Run Run Shaw. There was no stopping them after this. With these kinds of facilities now at their disposal, Run Run Shaw took Chinese films to a new level of respectability and technical achievement. Like I said, the Shaws weren't the only ones in the movie-making business. Ever since the earliest days, when the brothers began their enterprise in 1920s Shanghai, there were plenty of others with the same idea. All throughout their history, the Shaw's always had the competition breathing down their neck. They faced social upheavals, nationalism, tragedy, and triumph. Sometimes they beat the competition, and sometimes it was the other studios who beat them. From this new facility in Hong Kong, Run Run Shaw had positioned the company to become a serious contender, not only in their home Chinese language market, but internationally as well. In the early 1960s, all Shaw movies were filmed in color, and they were the ones who were credited with bringing color pictures to the Chinese language market. They were the pioneers in the East for this exciting new technology that everyone takes for granted now. There was nothing like this anywhere in Asia. This was as good and as sophisticated as anything you could find in Hollywood. Shaw movies left the competition in the dust. So much attention was paid to quality, technical aspects, and post-production. While the competition was still using the same old formulas and methods, the Shaw's bankrolled their pictures with big money to finance the cost of the higher quality productions. The 1960s also saw the proliferation of kung fu movies. I mean, they're big today, and they were big back then, too. Not only Chinese audiences, but international audiences as well. Love the idea of a humble martial arts expert, anti-hero, defending the poor or downtrodden against the mighty and more powerful. Shaw Studios were pumping out dozens of these wildly popular kung fu movies. The Japanese film directors, they had been making these similar samurai movies since the 1950s. Run Run Shaw had seen the appeal these movies had to mass audiences and gave him inspiration to bring the richness of Chinese kung fu to the big screen. Run Run Shaw took the company public in 1971. By this time, the whole organization was vast and extremely sophisticated. Run Run Shaw was a hands-on, micromanaging boss. His right-hand man was a guy named Raymond Chow, Zhou Wenhui. He was chief of publicity and production between 1958 and 1970. He left Shaw in 1970 to found his own fledgling studio called Golden Harvest. For a number of reasons, Raymond Chow left Shaw and struck gold, oil, and diamonds all in one with the discovery of a guy by the name of Li Xiaolong. Li Xiaolong was an up-and-coming kung fu actor who had made it big in the U.S. as an actor in a popular TV show. Li Xiaolong not only had the martial arts aspect down, but also the acting skills as well. Run Run Shaw wasn't willing to pay this guy what he wanted first. So Raymond Chow, in his small, dilapidated studio, trying to get up off his knees against such a giant as his old boss Run Run Shaw, he took a chance with Li Xiao Long, and you can say that hunch paid off. Li Xiao Long, of course, is none other than Bruce Lee, and the U.S. TV program, of course, was the Green Hornet. Not only did Bruce Lee's movies launch Golden Harvest as a major contender in the business, but also took the whole Kung Fu genre to new heights internationally. 1973 saw the release in the U.S. of Five Fingers of Death, Tianxia Xia Di Quan. It came out in Hong Kong first in 1972 and starred the first Kung Fu superstar, Lo Liet. This along with Bruce Lee's Fists of Fury and Enter the Dragon were what sparked the whole kung fu film invasion into the USA. Five Fingers of Death, also known as The Boxer, was a smashing success for Shaw Brothers. But nonetheless, Run Run Shaw had somehow let a real big fish slip away in losing Bruce Lee to the competition. And Golden Harvest milked the craze for Bruce Lee movies all the way to the bank, even though Bruce Lee would die tragically young in 1973, right when the whole... Kung Fu craze was taking off. Run Run Shaw was like a factory manager in that his modern mega studio was a totally self-contained, vertically integrated operation with Run Run Shaw at the top, managing every aspect of the business. It was a factory that churned out content that was shown to the public in Shaw-owned or operated theaters. By the 1970s, once the Hong Kong riots were nothing but a bad memory... Real estate prices exploded in Hong Kong, and as television became a more popular alternative to the movies, many of these grand Shaw cinemas were torn down and developed for the real estate value. And, of course, this enriched the Shaw organization even further. I'm not going to get into any names here, but Shaw Brothers created a lot of stars. Almost all the brightest shining stars in the world of Chinese-language movies came from Shaw Brothers. I have to believe Run Run Shaw knew he was the envy of almost every man, so often photographed like any other Hollywood mogul with a bevy of beauties and starlets on each arm, appearing at grand openings of pictures, award ceremonies, and the like. Run Run Shaw was in his prime in these days, although you can say, in a way, he was always in his prime, As his organization saw this explosion of growth in the 70s, he was already a man well into his sixth decade. By the time the 70s were in full swing, Shaw Brothers operated 230 movie theaters all across Asia and even in the U.S. and Canada. From their humble beginnings trying to get off the ground in Shanghai in 1925, Shaw Brothers had now become one of the largest, if not the largest, movie distributor in the world, with their fingers and movie pies in all the great markets of Southeast Asia, Hollywood, and India. 1967 was a big year for Run Run Shaw and the entire Shaw organization. In this tumultuous year in Hong Kong history, Run Run Shaw launched TVB, or Television Broadcasts. It is and always has been the premier leading TV station in Hong Kong. When I lived there in the 90s, they had something like a 70% market share, and I'm sure it's still not doing too bad. So Run Run Shaw sets up TVB, and of course there are a 1,001 synergies between producing shows for TV and making movies. Earlier this year, in January 2011, Sir Run Run Shaw sold most of his 32.5% stake in TVB, which netted him about a billion dollars. Telling you, the man still got it even at the age of 103. The 1980s saw the emergence of the second generation of Shaw's. These were the children of the six brothers. During these years, and for sure during the 1990s, when I was living in Hong Kong, Run Run Shaw's influence could be seen everywhere. You could see the magnitude of his generosity with all the hospitals, schools, and whatnot that his foundations provided for. The Shaw Foundation Hong Kong was set up in 1973 and has been a friend to so many people who have benefited from the foundation's generosity, especially in China, where most of the projects have been funded. The Shaw Foundation spreads its wealth, funding programs and scholarships in China, in Europe and the U.S. He's been especially generous with the Chinese University of Hong Kong, located up in the New Territories. And his name is often synonymous with this prestigious institution. And he never forgot where he came from either. If you remember the podcast from September last year on Li Ka-Shing, both Li and Run Run Shaw were typical tycoons who showered their hometowns with hospitals, medical schools, universities, and other forms of generosity and kindness. The largesse of Run Run Shaw's philanthropy can be seen all around his hometown of Ningbo and around Zhejiang province. By the 90s, Shaw brothers had managed to grind out over 900 movie titles. With the turn of the century in two thousand, seven hundred and sixty 760 titles from this magnificent library of films was sold to Celestial Pictures for 84 million US. Sir Run Run Shaw's first wife, Huang Mei Chen passed away in nineteen eighty seven, and ten years later in Las Vegas he remarried, looking fabulous at the age of ninety. His second wife is the very smart, talented, and business savvy Mona Fong Fang Yihua, who had played a key role in the TVB organization, serving as deputy chairman and now as general manager of TVB. She was a long-time Hongyan Ju Ji to Sir Run Run Shaw, which roughly translates to close confidant. The Shaw organization today is about three and a half billion U.S. dollars in size. From their modest start in 1925, when China was in the hands of greedy and self-serving warlords, Sir Run Run Shaw and his brothers together built an empire that today is vast diversified business interests and entertainment, banking, real estate, and hotels, and they operate on every inhabited continent on the planet. In 2002, Run Run Shaw set up the Shaw Prize. This is a $1 million prize given out annually to those scientists who are chosen for their achievements in the three fields of astronomy, mathematics, and medical sciences. It's sometimes referred to as the Nobel Prize of the East, It's administered by the Shaw Foundation in Hong Kong. There was a bit of a scare last year when Run Run Shaw had a spell of pneumonia and was hospitalized for an extended period. But Lok Sok, or Sixth Uncle, as he is affectionately known by so many, is still around and still serving in the capacity of executive chairman of TVB. One of the things dear to the heart of Run Run Shaw with all this movie making and entertainment was to bring the beauty, the splendor, sophistication, and uniqueness of Chinese culture to the world. He had that drive in him. For such a long time, Chinese cinema had been relegated to the Chinese markets and the Chinatowns of the world. Run Run Shaw sought to change all that and turn Chinese entertainment into something that appealed to an international audience. Of the four main Shaw brothers involved in this amazing family story, D. passed away first in thousand nine hundred seventy three followed by runji in february of thousand nine hundred and seventy five and run me in thousand nine hundred and eighty five Sir so Run Run is the last of the four brothers who played such an important role in Chinese cultural history and introducing so much of this culture to the world they weren 't the first Chinese to make movies, and you can argue all day about who was the best, but they were Certainly the most famous. Although the fortune Run Run Shaw built over the years doesn't match the size of some of the other big tycoons, his story is, in this humble narrator's opinion, by far the most fascinating. The man known by so many as Sixth Uncle is truly a treasure in the annals of Chinese history. And the fact that he's turning 104 years old in a few more months makes him even more appealing and fascinating a person. It's the year 2011 now, and those Chinese still living who could say they witnessed some of the historic moments in modern Chinese history that went on right after the Qing Dynasty fell, well, they're almost all gone, almost all of them. Although he's very frail now and can't see well, doesn't get out too much, I'm sure he's comforted and can enjoy the satisfaction in his old age of having lived a very good life and to have enjoyed everything in life there is to enjoy. And quite a legacy he leaves. There were six Shaw brothers, four of whom were active in the business and left their mark, but it was one, the youngest, who became the most renowned and the face of Shaw brothers. Sir Run Run Shaw. As a dilettante history podcaster, I think of Sir Run Run Shaw and what it must be like to have lived this long, almost 104 years, and seen all he's seen. I figure if most people start remembering things when they're five years old, he's been cognizant of everything that happened in China since at least right after Puyi abdicated. That's quite a point of reference. I wonder what he thinks when he looks at China today, where does he think China is going, having seen with his own eyes how far it's come in his long lifetime. And so that's it for now, everyone. If you were hoping for something about emperors, battles, or great events in Chinese history, I hope you're not leaving disappointed. I hope you all enjoyed that. And I'd like to uh, apologize again for last week's technical problem with the audio. I know a lot of you were wondering what happened to the other part of the podcast. Fortunately, my listener, Stephen C., notified me of the problem, and I re-recorded the part that got cut off and re-upped it, so sorry about that. Some sort of garage band problem that took an entire evening to solve. And so, from a baking hot Claremont, California, this is your humble narrator, Laszlo Montgomery, wishing you all the best wherever you are. Join us next week, won't you, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.